Well, as this is the first Sunday in the new year, I've got a New Year's message for you. It's entitled, Concluding the Past and Embracing the Future. Let's read Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Um, If you have your Bibles open there, you'll be able to look at some of the verses before, just to get the context, or if not, just listen, let me sketch it out for you. The book of Philippians is one of the most joyful and wonderful books of the New Testament. Paul doesn't have to rebuke them very much, just a couple of sisters in the church need a little bit of um, encouragement to be of one mind. But they had supported Paul on his journeys and taken care of him, and it's really a thank you letter, but in it, he throws some of his personal testimony. Talks about how he's given everything for the sake of the gospel. And indeed, he's lost everything. He lost all things. But he said, everything that I used to think was to my credit or to my favor, I discovered that it was rubbish. And I've lost it all, and I'm happy so that I might be found in Christ and to walk with him and to get to know him. And so he now speaks by way of aspiration. Let me explain something to you. I think it is true that you should always expect your preachers to be preaching from their own experience. In other words, to speak to the members what they know, what they've experienced, what they're living out, what they're living up to. But I want to tell you that a lot of my preaching is not like that. Because there is another valid way of preaching. It's preaching for aspiration. In other words, there are things that I have not yet attained. But I aspire to. And together, we can pursue them. And Paul breaks out into that kind of preaching when he says in Philippians 3 verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. I haven't got it. I'm going for it, but I haven't got it. I'm going to keep on going till I get it. Won't you join me? I think that's a wonderful exhortation. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. I can just see Paul says, just sitting down and saying to people, just this, just, this one thing. This one thing. Not a hundred things. Not um, the 15 things you wrote down on a piece of paper that you were going to change by January the 2nd. One thing. I love the simplicity of it. I wonder if somebody asked you, what was the one thing that preoccupied you? What was your one aspiration? And it wouldn't be wrong, but many people would answer in terms of worldly um, aspirations. Uh, I want a new job. I want to be married. I want promotion at work. I, I want, this year I want to buy my house. I want to take on another course. I want to advance. And it's very important for us as Christians to advance by the gifts and the grace of God 
so that we can most effectively serve him. And that kind of aspiration is laudable. But if you make that aspiration your only aspiration, you will miss everything. Because Paul's aspiration was not to any form of worldly success. He'd lost all of that. He was of the sect of the Pharisees. He, he had plenty of opportunity to, to advance in Judaism. But he says, I've stopped advancing in the religious institutions. That, that's not my goal anymore. I have another goal. Jesus has entered my life and the whole thing has turned right, right around. And he says, this is what I am doing. I do this one thing. One thing. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And by this, I don't mean, mean I believe he means self-effort. He is so eager. He is so ready. He's so positioned to pursue a positive future in Christ that he's giving it everything he has. But in order to give that, he has to let go of the past. And he says, I do this, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you have a memory problem. Most of us have a memory problem. And it goes like this. We remember what we should forget, and we forget what we should remember. And when it comes to spiritual things, we remember a lot of negative stuff that sticks with us. Maybe there's one thing somebody said to you in 2017, and you just can't get past it. You forget all the times when people were encouraging to you and stood with you and helped you and, and uh, strengthened you. And you forget that. It's the one thing, that one negative comment, that begins to rule your life. It seems that negativity has a lot of power over us. When I know this, maybe I'm just preaching about myself here. I know this. I can receive a lot of encouragement from a lot of people, but all it takes is one vicious comment to, for, me, for me to, for that to stick in my mind. And the truth is, we should forget certain stuff. We're going to come on to that. And remember other stuff so we are free to pursue Christ. Now, I'm praying today that God will do a deep work in all of our lives. I really am. So my style, my tone is a little bit different today. And uh, my goal is this, is that through this message and others like it, um, you and I will be able to let go of everything in our lives, especially the negative stuff, from year zero to last year. Because as we go into the new year, God has so much stored up for us that it's going to hold us back if we haven't dealt with some stuff. Now, I'm not suggesting that today we have open soul surgery and we deal with every issue and everything that is going on. Some, some people have more issues than Vogue. Some people have more hang-ups than a dry cleaner. But it's not about muckraking into our inner lives to the point of, of excessive scrutiny or introspection. 
But I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will highlight in all of us something, maybe just one thing, and it's going to be a trigger that will release you out with the old, in with the new. So um, the key here is to forget everything that is negative and destructive. Not just that, but we're starting here. So Paul says, one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. Now Paul could have become the biggest moaning mini in apostolic history because what he went through was extraordinary. Mind you, Jesus had warned him and saying, Paul, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, I'm going to set you before kings, you're going to make my name known, you're going to go to the Gentiles, and, and of course you're going to suffer a great many, many things. Are you up for it? Paul knew what he was signing up for. But many of us find it strange, as James says. Don't think it's strange when you fall into many kinds of trials and troubles. The Bible says it's through tribulation you enter the kingdom of God. Somehow, we feel that it, Christianity is all about happy clappy, feel good, and it's not about suffering. How could we possibly think that Christianity is not about suffering when at the center of our faith is the Christ who suffered? And of course, some triumphalistic preachers say, yes, he suffered so you and I don't have to suffer. So no more suffering for us. It's true, Jesus suffered to take away all suffering, but the manifestation of that is in the future. It is not yet. Now, we have to go through lots and lots of difficulties. And so we have to learn how to deal with the negatives, the destructive stuff. Everything that slows you down, everything that causes you to stop pursuing your purpose or the purpose of God for your life the reason he made you in the first place. It's rather like uh, the book of Hebrews where it says, uh, let's throw off every sin and the weight and the sin that entangles us that we can run with endurance, the race that is set before us. And of course, that's more like a marathon. Um, I know in the London Marathon all over the world, we have novelty runners. And uh, sometimes I wonder really about their mental st stability. I don't, I don't worry about that, but I mean, can you imagine these people dressed in all these heavy costumes? You couldn't walk three feet and they're going to, you know, take 26 kilometer miles, whatever it is. But, but the serious competitors are not like that. You never saw Paula Radcliffe run with the castle on her head <laughs> or with a Mickey Mouse costume. I mean, she was stripped down to the bare essentials because she was running the race she was in it to win it. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, let everything go that is hindering you. And this, this stuff clings closely, especially the stuff of the inner life, which we'll be touching on today. It clings closely. And whether you're 8 or 80, until you deal with it, it will be there. You can't push it down. You can't ignore it. You have to deal with it. And Paul says, Forget it, forgetting it, all right? Now, I'm not saying that you should simply ignore the past. At the very, very least, before you forget it and deal with it, learn from it. Learn from it. Some of the best learning experiences is when we messed up. Understand what I'm saying? Um, I don't know if you like 
I, I like that program. I haven't seen it for a little while. I haven't followed it for a little while. The Apprentice. You know, the program with The Apprentice. Not the Donald Trump version. No, no, no. The, the, the UK version. And Lord Sugar, Alan Sugar, I just, I just, I love it. It's, it does something to me. It releases me emotionally to see him say, you're fired, you're fired. But don't try this at home because it's totally against employment law. It is a television program. Um, but actually, also what's interesting is the learning experience of the contestants. And it, what they have to do is compete, uh, sometimes in teams and so on, work together on kind of mini business projects, and at the end they become his apprentice or, or, or receive a share, he has a share of their business, it's, it's that kind of thing. But what interests me is that each week you have winners and losers, and the winners and losers, there's a big difference between them. And sometimes there's not much in it, but the winners are the winners, and they get a reward. They go flying around in some in some helicopter, have tea in the most expensive tea shop, and, and the winners, when, as soon as they win, they're congratulating themselves. The task is forgotten. Everything's forgotten. They're just focusing on the reward, okay? But the other team, the team that loses, my, 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 what a different story. They go to the, to the most naffest calf ever. In fact, I don't even believe that calf exists. It must be a stage set but it is so depressing, and there they are, oh, you know, depressed and, and, and talking introspective. Well, you did this, you did this, or I didn't do this, and who's responsible for the failure of this task? And all the heart searching goes on. And because it's a competition, there's a lot of maneuvering. People start passing the buck and trying to blame each other. But what is interesting to me is it seems those who lose very often learn the most. And you learn from your mistakes. And that's not an excuse to go out and deliberately make mistakes. But, you know, when things haven't worked out so well, the analysis that you do when you examine what went wrong and why is so educational. It's so instructive. Whereas sometimes success happens and maybe people can explain why, but, but other times it, they, they can't. What I'm saying is this, learn from the past. Learn from your mistakes. Learn how uh, you reacted in certain situations, especially when the situation was not of your making. That's the hardest thing to cope with. When you have circumstances lined up against you, there's a job loss or something else that happens, um, uh, and there's a, something that goes wrong, and it's circumstances way beyond your control. And we human beings love control. And where we can't control, we think that's God's job. So God, I can't control this. I can't make this happen. So you make it happen. Thank you. After all, that's why you're my God. You're to do things I can't do. And actually, God does not exist for our pleasure. And he certainly, at this stage, does not exist for, to give us an easy life. No, no, no. We are in a school of discipleship. We are on a learning program. And what can happen is when things go wrong, and we do the right thing, 
We pray, because that's right, isn't it, to pray, and yet nothing happens. And we struggle, and our attitudes turn sour. Uh, there's been a lot of studies done why people stop attending their local church fellowship or attend church services. A lot of reasons. A lot of reasons. Usually, there's some form of offense. They get offended. And they take their offense with them and double offend in the next place where they go. And if you're looking for a church where you will never be offended, don't think of Kensington Temple. In fact, I can guarantee it, if you can be offended, you will be offended, but not just here, anywhere. The other reason why people slip away is because they feel that they can't make the grade and somehow have failed and have been judged for their failure. Uh, instead of believers embracing one another, encouraging one another, we actually put on a spiritual show for one another, make one another feel inferior so that we can feel superior and we drive people away from church fellowship. I thank God for our cell uh, group vision because in the cell groups, we don't treat one another like that. Do we, cell leaders? <laughs> we don't treat one another like that. We, we want to be real and I want people to be real and that, sometimes, when you're real, you wish you hadn't been. But the level of Christian fellowship is such when we are flowing with the Holy Spirit. It's inclusive, it's healing, it's therapeutic. Um, you, you, you get stirred up, you get a rebuke if you need it from people who love you, but they will never, ever exclude you and never, ever reject you. And that's one of the keys to positive Christian living. So we learn from the past. A wrong way of concluding the past is just to ignore it and bury it. Forget it. But often, that is just pushing it down and never really dealing with it. It's sweeping the dirt under the carpet. And what happens when you bury stuff, particularly neg negative emotions, you bury stuff, you bury it alive. And it may be six foot under, but it is working. And it continues to work. And in my experience, in my own life, as well as in the pastoral ministry, that continues to work on the inside of you and work negatively against your spiritual life forever until you deal with it. So sometimes it has to be uncovered. And many times we aren't even aware of the hurts we're carrying from the past. We are adults, so we don't think about some of the things that happened to us or our experience, experiences as kids. Not all psychology is sound, as you know, but I think there's common acceptance amongst psychologists that many of the things that affect us in adult life were sown in our childhood. I'm not getting excessive on, on this, but I, I believe it is right. And so some of the things that happened to us or we experienced when, when we were children can stay with us the whole of our lives. And when it's buried, things begin to happen. When negative emotions are buried and not dealt with over time, 
they result, can result in things like this, deep-seated anger, resentment, jealousy, depression, hopelessness, joylessness. And the Holy Spirit is encouraging us to bring it to God, expose it to the light, and let God deal with it. I remember a man whom I looked up to, and I still look up to him, because I am a little more understanding now than when this event took place, uh, the principle I've just been talking about. This man has my compassion now, much more than my disappointment. As a man I looked up to, um, a great man, we, had, we were theological companions. I'm not talking about Dr. R.T. Kendall, <laughs> whose very initials stand for right theology. R.T. is virtually on the plane. You know, we'd give him, he'd be here tomorrow if he could, but he's come, coming very, very soon. It's not, not Dr. R.T. Kendall, but a man who I greatly respected and enjoyed his import and enjoyed his ministry, and I really looked up to him, but my faith and my admiration was dented one day. And it was in a final meeting. He was with a group of colleagues, and he brought the devotions. He was moving into retirement. This was his final devotions. Wow, he spoke so well. The eloquence, the, the compassion, the illumination on the scripture. And I thought, that's how I want to remember this man. And I was like so in awe of what the Holy Spirit had done through him. But the very next thing we as a group heard from him were a series of letters and emails which were as childish and as immature and as negative and as destructive as you can imagine. Almost as much as his ministry had been a blessing, his personal issues were destructive. And I thought to myself, how can that be? Until I realized, actually, we all of us have the same issues, same problems. I mean, catch me on a good day, and you will think I'm Angel Gabriel's best friend. I'm glad that nobody here has seen me at my worst except one person and she, please, don't say anything. <laughs> you at your best, you're amazing. But you at your worst, that's a different story. If the one part of you comes from heaven, the other part comes from another place. <laughs> so, uh, in our frail humanity, there are things about us which shine, and the things about us that shame. So we, we, we all need God. We all need God. God help us. God help us all. God help us all. And if you find somebody with a weakness in that area, uh, be compassionate. And if, and, if, and if you're in the right relationship with them, one of the things you possibly can do is help them explore. I'd like to take that man back. I'm saying this by intuition. I don't know any facts of it. I'd like to take that man back to when he was eight years of age. And why I say that is because he was behaving like an eight-year-old. In fact, I know eight-year-olds that are more mature than he behaved at that time. Something happened somewhere which was not dealt with. And 
the problem with a public platform is that it's just that. I have to present the word of God to the best of my ability with as much presentation as is necessary to communicate. But that says absolutely nothing about my personal struggles. It says absolutely nothing about my personal weaknesses and failures. Right? So when you are presenting yourself to the public, whether you are a Christian in the workplace, a preacher on a platform, or wherever you are, we know that we want them to see the best in us because we want to glorify Jesus. But never do that at the expense of the integrity of the inner life, which is allowing the Holy Spirit's spotlight to shine on the inside and say, hey, this needs to be dealt with. Very often, one of the signs that there is something wrong beneath the surface is if we are overwhelmed sometimes by almost uncontrolled negative emotions. And now, uh, positive and negative emotions. I think God has given us a whole range of emotions. And I enjoy experiencing emotions, even when the emotions aren't always up and bubbly, because those emotions point to something, point to something that's going on on the inside. And very often emotions are like the oil light on a dashboard in a car. When they start flicking on like that, something is going on. Emotions are a gift from God. In, and even the stuff that we think are negative emotions. I don't think that God expects us to have a smile on our face all the time and to have such outward expressions of joy. Now, I know we're to rejoice in the Lord at all times, but rejoicing in the Lord at all times is costly, and we have to draw from the waters of salvation to rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't mean to say that all our circumstances are happy-clappy, but there is a joy that transcends every circumstance, and there's a peace that passes all understanding. We are real people, and we understand that people go through difficulties and problems. And it's no good just brushing it aside with some glib scripture text. Many of you know that Amanda and I suffered a great loss in our second child who was born, and then through medical negligence was severely handicapped. Lived for 16 years, it was a very, very difficult and trying time of our lives. And when this all came about, in the first instance, Amanda was still in hospital, I called somebody to come in and help with Elizabeth. She was, she was very, very small. And unfortunately, I, I, I forgot that her address was the book of Job. I mean, Job's comforters, right? And this was, oh, how are you? Oh, oh, don't worry about that. Everything's going to be all fine. Anyway, all things work together good for those who love God according to his purpose. You can teach a parrot to quote Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. <laughs> scripture is not meant to be parroted. I'm going to come to that scripture, hopefully, before the end of the service. But what is it that we feel... We've got to block off emotion when emotion is God's way of saying something to us. Why, why can we not do, even as the psalmists do, who express the full range of human emotion? Now, I'm not suggesting that the songwriters go and, and do this, but you read in the, in, the, in the Psalms, there are all kinds of extraordinary Psalms. One of the Psalms of lamentation. Can you imagine us, okay, for our first 
song today is going to be a lamentation. Oh God, we lament! I know we're to rejoice in the Lord, but having emotions, sometimes even if they're not pleasant emotions, can lead us in the, in the direction of God if we interpret them right and if we don't let those emotions control us. And so it can be a signal, anger, resentment, and often what people are responding to at that time, and I'm sure with that dear man, who I now, now no longer judge, as I think I did back then, whom I now have compassion for, something happened, what a tragedy, it was never dealt with. Don't go through your life as a professional Christian without dealing with the stuff that goes on. Hurts from the past, pain, neglect, abuse, suffering. Learn to conclude the past. How do you conclude the past? I think the best way is, is saying it's about forgiveness, friends. Until you forgive, it's got a hold of you. We talk about letting it go. No, we need it to let go of us. And as long as you hold with anger or bitterness or judgment or unforgiveness, it remains a part of your life. The Bible says, do not repay evil with evil. Vengeance is mine. Don't just forgive. Just give it to God. Did you hear me, somebody here today? Give it to God. Let it go. Give it to God. But you don't know. No, I don't know. I'm not pretending I know, but God knows, and the God who knows says, give it to me. Let it go. Let it go. Artie Kendall speaks about three kinds of forgiveness. They were book titles, and book titles can be catchy and sometimes a bit confusing. So he's got three books on forgiveness, total forgiveness, totally forgiving yourself, and totally forgiving God. Well, why does God need forgiveness? We'll come to that in a moment, but anyway... Total forgiveness. The Bible says, as the Father has forgiven us, so we ought to forgive others. Why? So that we can be children of our Father in heaven. He has so wonderfully and graciously forgiven us all things, and when God forgives, he forgets. That's how he forgives. Did you know that? Forgive as God has forgiven you. How has God forgiven us? I tell you, he says, your sins and your iniquities, I will remember them no more. I will forget. Now, that doesn't mean to say God uh, goes through a process of self-induced amnesia. What it means he forgets, he says, I will not record this against you. It will not count against you. You are free from that. That's how God forgives. And if you think about the gift of forgiveness... And one of the things that we try to stress in this church is that salvation is 100% God's grace. We can't do anything to add to, the, to the salvation. Paul says here, I, I've lost everything and I think it's worth it that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness which comes from God, the free gift of righteousness. So don't try and establish your own righteousness ever. It's, you're, 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 it's, you're doomed to fail. No way can that happen. There's only one way to be right with God, and that's to accept the righteousness and perfection of Jesus given to you as a gift of God received by faith. And the moment you believe, 
You are never more qualified for heaven than you are at that moment. In other words, you are totally qualified for heaven, not because of what you've done, but because of God has come along and said, I forgive you. And it was not a cheap forgiveness. A lot of people think that the cross is confusing. Why, why does God just forgive? Why does it have to be a price to be paid? Anybody who's truly forgiven anybody of anything will know it's costly. Let's put it at monetary level. Suppose somebody here, and this is a nice thought, let me play with it a bit. So somebody owes me here a thousand pounds. No, let's make it more. Come on, come on, come on. Ten thousand pounds. Somebody owes me ten thousand pounds. And I look at the situation and I forgive that debt. What has it cost me? 10,000 pounds. Yes? I just forgive it, but, but actually it has cost me. And in the same way when God forgives, it costs him. Because he had to find, had to pay the price himself. And there's only one price that could be paid. And that is the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. Not because God is bloodthirsty or morbid, but because it is death as a substitute for the sinner's death. It cost God everything. And the gift of forgiveness is so precious. If you don't have that gift today, you can receive it right now. You can say, God, forgive me for Jesus' sake. I want Christ in my life. I stop depending on my own righteousness. I want to be found in Christ. I want to know that Christ's righteousness is my own as a gift. From then onwards, of course, things have to change. But up to that point, it is totally, 100% God's gift to you. And if you have been, and I have been so fully and freely forgiven... How can we hold on to unforgiveness? How can we say that our moral indignation, that our sense of righteousness exceeds that of God, who is the only righteous one, the one who could have judged everybody, chose to forgive in Christ? Why is it then that we hold on to the tiny little details I mean, it's, it's, surely it's a screaming inconsistency. And so in this whole question about forgiving and letting go of the past, it begins by you and I reveling in the goodness of God and the grace of God and realizing how much God loves us to treat us like that and let that love, his grace, his forgiveness shape our heart. And when the love of God is in your heart, you cannot not forgive. In other words, you cannot hold on to unforgiveness. It just melts away. It just melts away. If you're struggling to forgive, go into the presence of God and let God melt your heart. Now, when I say this, I'm mindful that it's very likely that people watching and here today who've gone through some of the most horrendous things, that when you hear the story you want to go out and find that person and you want to meet out justice on behalf of your friend. You want to do that, all right? And some things happen in our lives that are so, so painful and it's almost unbearable. But God's grace is such that if you release 
somebody that has sinned against you, somebody that's hurt you, without any discussion, without any trying to inter interaction, just in your heart, forgive in the name of Jesus, something happens to you. You are released. And, the, and until you forgive, you're in prison. I hear a lot of chains rattling. I hear prison doors opening. Come on, come out, come out. Stop living in that prison cell. Go to your cell group, but don't go to that spiritual prison cell. Step out, step out, step out into the light. Step out into joy. Step out into freedom. Step out into forgiveness. Step out into healing. I remember when I was studying in a healing a number of years ago, I heard a remarkable testimony coming from the ministry of uh, an Anglican bishop, Bishop David Pitchers. And it's at a healing line, and a woman came forward for prayer with arthritis. I guess from the description it would be rheumatoid arthritis. And the man praying felt he had a word, said, you know, I think, dear sister, God is asking me to ask you to forgive your father. Forgive my father? Never! And she began to cry as she released forgiveness. Now, it's very dramatic. It doesn't always happen like this. But it's an Anglican bishop, so I trust him. It's not a Pentecostal, okay, it's an Anglican bishop. As the lady's tears fell, tears of repentance and forgiveness fell on her hands, her hands were instantly healed. Now, if you have arthritis here today, don't think I'm saying that of you. <laughs> you, 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 you know, you, you can't make those assumptions. But what we can say in principle and generally speaking, forgiveness is good for your health. Unforgiveness is bad for your health. God has created us to be open-hearted, positive people to reflect his goodness into the world. To reflect, it, I'm sounding a bit Sunday schoolish, but let me say it anyway, because it, to let the sunshine of his love shine into your heart, melt your heart, and reflect his warmth and goodness to everybody around you. Is that not Christianity? Come on. 2018. Amen, amen. Let it go. Forgive others. Forgive yourself. Now, we're playing with language a little bit here. And I'm falling into the trap of book titles. Uh, I spoke uh, a couple of Sundays ago about the uh, um, importance of loving yourself. And I have to get over some hurdles with this. Not only because I've struggled all my life with, uh, self, over the issue of self-acceptance, but also because love, by definition, is orientated to somebody else. Love is about what you give to others. But the Bible does say, um, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and it's making a strong assumption for people who are mentally and emotionally healthy, is that we do take care of ourselves. All right? Not that we necessarily put ourselves first, but we know what it means uh, to feel good because we're fed, we're comforted. And, of course, there are conditions, psychological conditions and spiritual conditions, in which people actually self-harm because they haven't learned how to love and accept themselves. But let, let me put it this way, because this language of self-love is, is, is very difficult language to explain in a Christian context, but let me put it this way. I believe that 
now is the time, today is the time, that we deal with self-loathing. Self-loathing. Shame. And one of the most powerful weapons in the enemy's armory is the weapon of shame. Don't forget that the enemy is the accuser. You know, he's the accuser. So even stuff that God has forgotten, the devil remembers. And he brings it up every single day. And if we're not careful, if we buy the lies of the enemy, we can start to carry shame and self-loathing. Now, God has made you and I beautiful. And the you that is you is the you that he made. But the you that is you got lost somewhere along the line. And it's that which he's restoring. And you are going to be so glorious and so amazing when you see who you really are. Because not only are we going to see Jesus face to face and see him as he is, we're also going to see his face reflected in us and we're going to see ourselves as we truly are. That you that is you and nobody else but you is the you that God made and he wants you to nurture it and be compassionate to yourself. So if you feel you've messed up and sometimes we carry shame because of society or authority figures, remember that Jesus carried our shame on the cross that we should share in his glory. Our shame is exchanged for his glory. So if you have a sense of shame in any way, you brought it before God, expect a spirit of glory to come upon you. Amen and amen. amen. Now, self-compassion, looking at how you react wrongly and understanding why, usually, this is a generalization, but usually when we react in the wrong way or take the wrong choice, it's because we're looking for something that only God can give, but we're looking, at, looking for it in the wrong places. And if you recognize that what you did, you were pursuing something, and it was the wrong way, you're halfway there, because you know what you're pursuing. The other half is to direct it towards God. So if you're looking for affirmation, if you're looking for impact, if you're looking for security, if you're trying to find love, those are good things because we were created for those things. But only seek it in God and the things that he chooses to provide in your life. Amen and amen. amen. And by that understanding and self-compassion, you can direct yourself into the right direction. Finally, forgive God. Now, of course, let me say straight away, God has done nothing wrong. So he does not need forgiveness. But in our mind... We hold him responsible for everything that's gone wrong. I mean, even non-Christians say, what's he got against me? I heard somebody missed the bus. Whoa, what's your, what do you got against me today, God? As if God was the bus driver. You know. <laughs> now, let me explain to you what happens when we think like that. We think that here's the deal. God... I can do, I will do what I can do. But there are many things right outside of my control, which I can't do, but that's where you come in. I can do what I can do. You must do what you can do for me. Can you see how ungodly that is? Can you see it? 
Can you see how ungodly it is? doesn't mean to say God doesn't want to help us and bless us, but he doesn't exist for our pleasure. We exist for his pleasure. So what can happen is we can blame God for it happening in the first place. Where were you when I needed you? Or we can actually blame him because, oh God, this has happened. And I accept, accept, I know bad things happen to good people. I know the devil is the troublemaker. I know, God, you didn't do this. And I blame the devil. I hate the devil. I hate the devil, 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 devil. No, but I love you, love, love, love you, God. I hate the devil. I love you, God. I love you, God. I, all right? And we pray. Nothing happens. Oh, you're not confessing. So we confess it. Nothing happens. Oh, you haven't praised us. You're, hallelujah, hallelujah. Nothing happens. Aha, you should speak in tongues more. Hila mashila. Nothing happens. Oh, you, 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 you. And there every, so many false spiritual technologies people have put forward, even in Christianity, to get around the problem that God does not always do what we want him to do. But isn't that the point? God says, pray like this. Let your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Not my will be done in heaven. It's God's will done. And you say, oh yeah, well of course it's God's will. God doesn't, want, God doesn't will suffering, sickness and death. No, of course not. But it enters the world and he is going to deal with it all. It's just actually not time yet. But soon and very soon we are going to see the king. No more crying there. No more dying there. And that's not just pie in the sky. It is absolutely demanded by the righteousness and justice of God. It shall happen. All those atheists who shake an angry fist in the face of God and say, if you're a good God, how, why did you do something about this? God is going to do something about this. He is all loving and all powerful. Therefore, the confrontation at the end of the age will be absolute and God will get the victory. I know whose side I'm on. Help us, Father. And we know this, that our stumbling blocks can become stepping stones. Our past successes we celebrate but don't make a monument out of them. We remember what God has done. We count our blessings. But every good thing that has happened in the past is a milestone on our journey, taking us in the direction of Jesus Christ. I'm going to wind it up very quickly. Don't forget, Paul didn't just say, forgetting the past. He says, pressing forward. Now, what is it? What is it? What, what do we press forward to? Let me say it very quickly and simply. We don't know the future. We might have some insights, might have some prophetic revelation. I've got an inkling about certain things that are going to happen, but every prophet, prophetic person only sees in part. Mostly, this next moment, this next day, mostly we're treading into the unknown. So if you are wanting to embrace the future, how can you embrace a future that hasn't happened? How can you embrace a future that you don't know about? Very, very simple. Very simple. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. 
Let that be your driving passion in 2018 and beyond. Pursue him. Lay hold of Christ. Don't make your goal marriage, a career, or anything. Make your goal Christ, and he will lead you. He knows what's coming up. He's ahead of the game. He's ahead of the curve. He knows the end from the beginning. Put your hands in his hands. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Stick close to Jesus and listen carefully. The life you live today is the fruit of what you sowed yesterday. The life you sow today is the fruit you shall reap tomorrow. Make a decision once and for all. Say, I'm finished with that old stuff. God, help us. It won't happen in an instant. It's a crisis message, I know, but it's, this is an actual process. But I believe in every one of us, something can happen today. We can be set free to move forward with Christ and reprioritize our lives around the one who knows the future and the one who has nothing but a future and a hope and a blessing for us and the true prosperity. What is prosperity? The Bible word means a good and successful journey. And it's used of finances, but the Bible meaning is much bigger that God gives us all the resources necessary for every step of the journey from now until eternity, and we are going to get there. It's going to be successful. We're going to have a good journey. It won't always be pleasant circumstances. There will be great circumstances at times, but we know that where we're headed, and we're following him, and we're sticking close to him, close enough to hear him, close enough to feel his impulses in our lives, and close enough to appreciate that his wisdom is beyond our wisdom. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. Stick with Jesus and you will have a happy and prosperous new year. God bless you, everybody. Amen and amen.